What does healing mean to you? Just imagine if there were places that we could be proud to take a family member, we could be happy to go to as a person with a mental illness, we could be happy to work there, we could be happy to volunteer there. health podcast raising unanswered questions sharing unanswered prayers we are faith-based peer-led story-driven and stigma breaking i am tony roberts i am eric riddle and we are revealing voices So, Eric, how did you spend Mother's Day? Well, I spent it uh, at my home and uh, organizing a Zoom call with my, uh, my family. Uh, my aunt was on there, uh, both of my sisters. So there was about 10 of us. The Riddles always have a good time when they gather. Right. You guys are a great family. You travel together. You, you're looking at maybe doing a trip Yeah. if the restrictions allow. So that's a big topic. Yeah, my sister is in Mississippi, and they have uh, friends who have property on Dauphin Island in Alabama. We've been talking about this since well before uh, COVID started. I hope we can go. I'm kind of leaning in that direction. Uh, we'd all be in the same house. Uh, we wouldn't have to get out that much, right? We could yeah. make a lot of food, have a lot of fun. Play a little board games. You guys do jigsaw puzzles, board games. There'd be a lot of board games. Yes. Yes. Which I love board games. I, I could do what, that do you, what, do, what is one of your favorite? Tony, I've got so many. Yeah. I, I've gotten into King Domino. That's a lot of fun. I like the game Blockus a lot. But yeah. the kids and Jen don't like it so much. But my sisters do. So that... I'll hey. definitely have some blockus there. Well, of course, Euchre, which is an Indiana oh, game. Oh, yeah. You got to love Euchre. Get some Uno in there. We have some yeah. Phase 10. These are all card games. There's a game called Monopoly Deal that's mm -hmm. a card game version of Monopoly that's actually an excellent game. Mm -hmm. We play that as much as anything. There's a game called Exploding Kittens. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent game. Scrabble. Uh, there's a game called Bananagrams that is sort of like Scrabble, but... You can play it in like 15 minutes. Actually, Bananagrams is becoming a favorite. It's you guys are very we're literate. literate. We're literate people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you want to know what's been on my mind, Derek? I think I might know. Yeah. My book. The my, book. My second book, When Despair Meets Delight. Stories that cultivate hope for those with serious mental illness. And it is... Primarily a memoir, unlike my first book, which was a devotional book with uh, biographical, autobiographical stories. Yeah. This is much more chronological. It is. It's chronological. That was one of the feedbacks I received on my first book, uh, not being able to really follow along with my story. So this is very chronological. 
it details my uh, not a lot of my early upbringing, but my certainly a lot of my pastoral ministry, and then my time following that, kind of as a mental health minister. And then it concludes with some tips, if you will, or kind of how I've done mental health ministry and and suggesting or pointing in the direction of how others might pick up the mantle. I mean, I've been working on a concept and it's been conceived over the last five years. Right. But in, in terms of actually writing, I did that in about six weeks and then bringing all the pieces together, I've done in about two, two weeks. I know in the proposal that I sent to Moody, they asked questions like, you know, how many copies do you expect to sell? What is your social media platform? Yeah. I mean, basically, they expect you to do a lot of the work. Um, and The you work know, you do on social media, I mean, that's where you do a lot of writing. I, I do. There is a lot of writing going on there. And, and I think they make a good point of you having to do your own legwork. I mean, that's more and more of the thing, and you have a social media presence. I've built up a platform in the last five years that is impressive. I'm impressed, Tony. As well you should be. <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy with it. I've got a lot of enthusiasm generated. I have over 75 advanced sales now. You haven't counted Jen and I yet for our advanced copy. Well, you haven't uh, signed uh, your check yet. So, <laughs> how much is an advanced copy? Well, advanced copies are fifteen dollars, and that is an inscribed shipping or hand delivery. Um, in your case, uh, you can PayPal me at Tony Roberts Delight at Gmail com. Okay. I watched with Jen uh, the Disney Plus eight-episode series of the National Parks. Ah. And each episode is about 45 minutes long. Highly recommend it. it it's mainly focused on animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I would say at least 80% of the show is just kind of documenting animal life in the parks, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of bears in the mix and bobcats. The bobcats of Yosemite were really cool. Mm-hmm. They really, it's amazing how they're able to even track these animals the way they do. The uh, Smoky Mountains one was the last mm-hmm. one. Really mm-hmm. good. I've actually never really gone to the Smoky Mountains for a vacation. That's high on our list of places to go. I know a guy very near there, buddy of mine, Les, Les Russ. Yeah. That did a program with us, and he, he he's a hiker, and he, he makes hammocks and then sleeps in them all the time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. We want to introduce you to Leslie Carpenter. She is a fierce advocate for those who suffer with mental illness. Tony, you know her much better than I. Yes. Leslie, I would say she's among my top five advocates that I look to for information. And uh, her bailiwick really is to lobby legislators at first, uh, presidential hopefuls, and now she does a lot in the state of Iowa where she lives Yeah, um, and where her son is currently in a group home, uh, and she tries to advocate for his care yep. and the care of others. Yeah, I really enjoyed this interview.
A lot of fun. Yep. Okay. Let's roll. Okay. Um, Eric. Yes. Tony. <laughs> we, we are uh, fortunate this evening to have with us Leslie Carpenter from Iowa. What part of Iowa, Leslie? We're in Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, okay. Iowa City. What, what college is in Iowa City? Is one of the big colleges there? Yeah, the big one. The University of Iowa. Okay, the big one. And uh, Leslie is a strong advocate for persons impacted by serious mental illness. And she'll give a little uh, definition of sorts for what that means. There's a different uh, words that are used in different circles. But um, we're going to talk a little bit about what drew her into advocacy, as well as some stories of uh, life on the trails of uh, working with uh, legislators and uh, candidates, um, and then also some policies and upcoming proposals that our listeners can be uh, aware of to become more engaged in issues related to mental illness. So Leslie, share a little bit, if you would, about uh, what first drew you into the field of serious mental illness advocacy. Sure. So our husband and I have two children, and the oldest of which... um, had a really normal childhood, but he became um, ill in about 2008 when he was around 16 years old. He has a, a schizoaffective disorder. He's been in three different residential care facilities. He's been in three different group homes. He's been at our mental health institute when, as an adult, he chose to stop taking his medications at one of those facilities and had to be hospitalized um, back in the MHI to get booked back on his medications. Um, He lives with a nosonosia. Um, He does not have the ability to understand that he's ill and he has to continue taking those meds. Mm-hmm. So what drew us into advocacy was just all the barriers. Um, it felt like never before in our life had we had to fight for every single thing to get someone medical care. And we were just floored. We had no idea before we faced this with our son just how hard it was. And, and especially how hard it was, the sicker you were, the harder it was to get you the care. And mm-hmm. that to me made made no sense and it Mm. really frustrated us and the move to advocacy came in 2005 Um, I finally you know through all the years of our son being in and out of the hospital we've been advised to go to NAMI's family to family class and it was really hard to fathom how to do that because I was working nine hours a day Mm -hmm. taking care of patients going to the hospital in the evening going home trying to keep our daughter's life normal Um, but we finally did, and it really did help me to process my grief. Um, it helped me to learn to let go of feeling solely responsible of our son's ultimate outcome, which let's face it, it may not be very good, but I came to understand through family to family that if it wasn't very good, it wouldn't be my fault. It wouldn't be my husband's fault or something that we didn't beg for or something that we didn't find or research or plead for. It would just be because of how sick he is and how broken the system is. And for me, that you said you were going to ask me about healing. For me, that was my Mm -hmm. personal healing 
I'll yeah. answer the question about his healing later, but just mm-hmm. for you to know that for me was healing. But the move to advocacy came the evening that they had a class on advocacy, um, and they showed us a uh, video. Pete Early, Pete the Early. Oh, yeah. journalist. Pete you guys Early. Know Pete. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I haven't ever had a chance to meet him or speak with him personally, but many years before, when he had come to visit Iowa City, they taped him at the Englert Theater, and he gave a talk about his journey with his son, Kevin. His um, speech that evening that I got to watch the recording of is really what burned in me the desire and the, the understanding that it wasn't just advocating for our son and other people that we'd met. It was advocating for the other 11.9 million people living with serious brain disorders. I'm not familiar with Pete Early. Could you say a little bit more? So Pete Early um, is a Washington journalist who, when his son became sick, he ran into some of the same kind of barriers of getting his son admitted and getting him the care that he needed. And so he decided to go ahead and look at the issue as an investigative journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, And he went down to Florida and started seeing what was going on in the criminal justice system with people that had serious brain disorders um, and how broken it was. And he wrote a book. I think it might be called Crazy. Yeah, I think it is. I have the the same book, too. Yeah. Yeah. His story and his sharing in this one talk that he gave of, you know, you can't feel like it's hopeless. Here's some specific things that can be done. Here's some examples of what have been done. And he talked about the Fountain House in New York. And he talked about some of the other programs that were going on around the country. And it just made me realize, hey, we may not be able to make huge differences everywhere, but we have to start. And so we started early on. My husband actually had our first advocacy goal of wanting to just change the admission process through the university hospital here in town because we had some really horrible experiences there, and so did our son. It was very um, just getting somebody admitted with a serious brain disorder is traumatic to that person and to their family members, and it shouldn't have to be that way. So our family-to-family teacher got us in meeting with a local um, emergency uh, medical director, And we went to this meeting, we laid out what we thought would help to make improvements in the process, and we walked away and we thought that was a waste of time. We really, truly thought nothing would ever come of it. And we never had any follow-up. We had asked for some data. We'd asked if they wanted to reach out to get some help on things. Never heard a thing. Well, several years have passed now, and last fall, they actually opened a crisis stabilization unit at the hospital, which has made a huge difference for a lot of people. It's reduced how many people end up getting admitted in the first place. It's reduced how many people get transported all over the state in the back of a sheriff's car. Mm -hmm. Um, It's truly helped and we can't take responsibility for that we didn't have anything to do with this new Mm -hmm. unit opening but we like to think of it that maybe we were one little ripple one effect on it you know leslie you talk about small steps and i also want to pick up on you've been using the term serious brain disorders or disease what 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 term do you prefer and and why is that a a more effective and accurate term. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. So when we say things like serious mental illness, that does um, distinctly describe what we're talking about, people with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and bipolar disorders. The reason I like to say brain disorders 
is I think there's a different connotation um, and it gets people to think differently about it. Um, I think of our son's brain disorder as a neurological brain condition, just like older patients that I've seen for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I want them to have a medical context without any blame and without the word behavior, um, because behavior infers that the person's choosing what's happening instead of it being a reflection of their illness. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of careful, and if I could, I would go through and change all the hospitals that have behavioral health units. I know. I would change them over. I would change over the wording of that because I think it well, just puts in such stuff, a connotation. Right? Exactly. You got to go where where people are, and you, sometimes you have to do the interpreting. <laughs> exactly. I agree with you, Leslie. That's a good point. Yeah. There is a question. I think you may have raised this: having people come up with a new term for a behavioral health unit. Right. There were a lot of creative ideas there. You know. There were. Like, there were. I go see ahead. also one benefit, and you use you you brought in the you know Alzheimer's, basically people who on a brain scan, it could be seen that there is a disorder, there's something wrong on the brain. The benefit I see of that approach is that maybe it would move the treatment from the back alleyways of you got to go to a separate wing of the hospital and, you know, go go up and down an elevator that doesn't work. Uh, Maybe we would have a brain center where these things could be funded and treated. Exactly. Yep. It would open up research. It would open up hearts and minds and make it less, less of an illness that people discriminate and um, have biases about. Yeah. Now on the flip side of that, and I'm going to ask you to put on your NAMI hat for a little bit because NAMI has received some criticism from others in the advocacy field because they uh, have focused a great deal or chosen recently, I should say, to focus more on stigma than on conditions of improving treatment. Um, you've kind of been in the middle of that <laughs> conversation. So yeah. Say, yeah. say more about where you see that uh, now and where we're headed with that. Right. So I am on the board of our local NAMI affiliate. Um, I am a teach NAMI provider training. As you know, I'm raising a lot of money, trying to raise a lot of money for our local affiliate um, because NAMI does a huge amount of good. But the the thing that they had as their um, big theme last year was hashtag cure stigma. And honestly, when I read that for the first time, it filled me with rage um, because we are never going to cure stigma. And if you ask me as the mom of somebody with a very horrible brain disorder, what I want to cure are brain disorders. I want to cure schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar um, disorders, and depression, right? Who doesn't want to actually cure the diseases? Um, because I think that no matter what we do, no matter what we act, and say it doesn't really have huge impacts in terms of the discrimination that is the barrier to care. Um, Yes, stigma is out there, and it is horrible. I've seen it. You've seen it. Everybody sees it. But I don't think that should be our focus. I think, truly, if we want to get rid of stigma, we spend the money on getting people that have the most serious illnesses the treatment 
so that they aren't displaying their illnesses out on the streets. And when they're untreated, having some unfortunate outcomes where they do hurt themselves or someone else. Mm -hmm. And we need to admit that that sometimes happens when people can't get the care that they need. It's just a reality. Not very high, but it is a reality. Uh, yeah, I, I fully agree. I'll, I'll be honest. Eric and I have this conversation a lot. So I see it as a spectrum between uh, addressing discrimination and, and stigma as a focus and then <clears throat> treating uh, more f- emphasis and dollars and focus on cure. And it's something like a two-prong attack. I've swung in in the pendulum side toward more cure because, like you say, as I've gotten better in my own illness and told my story, which I think NAMI is good at. I think that's one thing NAMI does well within our own voices and family to family. You know, I think sharing our stories and being more open about our challenges will naturally reduce stigma and hopefully discrimination. Um, but in terms of our dollars, in terms of our time, you know, I think I think we need to do, like you say, pour that into research and legislation. Absolutely. Let's shift okay. there and talk about your conversations with candidates, because this okay. is very informative. I think our listeners will enjoy. So the conversations with Elizabeth Warren really progressed over the course of time. And it was really one of the reasons we spent so much time going to all of these events to see them multiple times. Because initially, when I had talked to her in line, it was in one of the selfie lines. It was a very brief conversation. And then the second time, you get to say a little bit more and then the third time. Well, initially, when I started talking with her about some of the policies for people with serious brain disorders, she said, well, you know, I'm I'm really concerned about stigma, da-da-da-da-da. And I said, well, you know, stigma is a thing, but really, if you're going to spend some money, I'd rather you spend it on treatment. And here's some things. And of course, we gave her things in writing every time. And she early on said to me, she said, you know, there's people on other sides of these issues. And I said, yes, I know. And I wasn't really prepared for that the first time she said it to me, because at that point in time, I hadn't hit, come up and had my head, you know, bumped up against the wall of the people with the disability rights groups and Mm -hmm. Bazelon and all of those. So later, when we actually got to meet with her and take her through a brief PowerPoint that we'd put together for this purpose, I was more prepared and able to say, you know, yes, and here's the things that I understand from this community. But what I'm talking about is a whole different group of people, people that are much more severely sick, who don't know it, we're advocating for different people, the different types and severities of their illnesses need different things. And she sat back and she said, Oh, I get it now. It was Mm -hmm. like a light bulb went on. So back to the stigma thing, when I talked with her about stigma the last time, she had brought up stigma answering a question my husband asked. He got the lucky number in the crowd where he could ask a question. And she talked about, hey, we need to address stigma. So when we got up there, you know, it was kind of bugging me because I didn't really want her putting any money into anti-stigma stuff. I wanted it in treatment. And so I said, you know, I, I just want you to know that you, as in your position already as a senator, you have the power to address stigma just with your words. And here's what you can do. Just call them out. Call it schizophrenia. Call it bipolar disorder. Call it schizoaffective. Don't say mental illness. 
Yep. Just give them the names because it's like we used to whisper about cancer. And now we yep. say cancer out loud. And she stood back and she looked at me. She's like this. She just instantly integrated that information. She goes, that's true. And I can do this from the Rose Garden. <laughs> and I yes. was just like, yes, she gets this. She has the platform. And thankfully, later on in one of her town halls, maybe on CNN, and I saw her do that. She named those mm -hmm. terms. And that's very powerful because just having them start to use those words helps to break down the barriers. Yeah. So in terms of all the other candidates, <laughs> we started out fairly simply by giving them um, a one or two page document with ways to have um, specific federal policy changes that would help people with serious brain disorders. We also gave them state level changes. And the first ones that we gave them were the ones from DJ Jaffe, of course, because he said, yes, you can give these out. And he gave us permission to put our contact information on the top of the page along with his. Then we kept going and we gave them Dee Dee Moon Ranahan's um, SMI um, poll that she had done, the top five recommendations. We gave them those, um, also gave them the cover letter and the extended plan. And there was a lot of overlap and that was okay with me because redundancy is the key to education, right? The more you say things, the more times it starts to bear in. The people that we really had the most impact with were the ones that we ultimately got to sit down and do a PowerPoint with, where we shared a brief synopsis of our son's story, some of the barriers we ran into, a little bit of the history of the mental health crisis in the country, and then the specific policy recommendations that could help change and reverse it. And taking them through a PowerPoint with pictures was extremely powerful and impactful. Um, we got to spend the most time with Cory Booker. I think we had like 20 minutes one evening to spend with him. And that was huge. And at the end of it, he said, okay, we're going to start working on this in the Senate office, not just with my campaign. We need to work on things already, which is really great. We had about 10 Kamala Harris. We had about 10 minutes with Elizabeth Warren. Those were the most impactful ones in terms of the ones where we actually got to sit there and take that time. The rest of them are were a lot more over the phone or in person and quick and short. But the repetitive nature of showing up, they started to understand that we were serious and persistent, right? Mm. So it really made a difference with them. Joe, the first time I met him, we were standing there right before the 4th of July parade in Independence. Um, he held my hand. He pulled me in so that he could hear me. He listened to the story. He said, oh, this is an issue that matters to me. I'm very concerned about the veterans coming back with PTSD. I understand. And every time I saw him after, he would say, how is your son? Mm, wow. You know, he truly is somebody that listens. So my hope with him is even though he's not a policy wonk and he hasn't laid out a wonderful mental health plan, he will listen to the wisdom of the other senators that we have educated. He will listen to Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar. Mm -hmm. He'll listen to Steve Bullock if he gets elected to be a senator, right? So all these other senators are now in the know. They understand what needs to happen. And Joe will work with them. Um, I don't think he's ever going to be the leader on this, but I think he will easily work with those people to help implement policy. So my heart would feel most at ease with Joe Biden. 
our goal was, hey, we had no idea who would end up winning the presidency and if it would even be a Democrat. Yeah, that's right. We still don't know that. But our goal was, hey, there's all these U.S. senators, representatives, Mm -hmm. governors, mayors coming to Iowa and they want our vote. They're going to come and see us. And if we'd make the time to go out there and establish and build a relationship with them and a rapport, then we are going to be able to help educate all these people that are already in positions of power who don't seem to get the SMI piece. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what I learned from DJ is that in the national at the national level, Republicans are much better on SMI policy actually than the mm-hmm. Democrats had been, and that was an education for me. I didn't know that, so learning mm-hmm. that, I realized that this would be a powerful time, and it might not happen again because we might not be first in the nation anymore. So mm-hmm. it would be a one-time shot. We also went ahead and met with every campaign staffer, every state-level staffer, every regional staffer. We met with probably. 40 people over the course of that year and a half of the time, because our play there was all these people, all these young people, we could be educating all of them as well, because they might end up on somebody's staff, right? Whether it's at a state level, whether it's at a local level or a federal level, these people are all going places. And the more people who were going to sit down and take the time to listen to us, we were spreading that word, right? More ripples ripples of hope. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in terms of if, if you were to just categorize which party has developed a plan more comprehensively for SMI reform, the Republicans or the Trump administration, they have recently written into the proposed budget, the congressional or congressional budget, funding to make some of these proposals a reality. Say a little bit more about that. What do you uh, what do you see there that could be a step forward? I haven't seen that specific full proposal, so I don't want to make any broad assumptions on that, but I'm assuming that if they followed the what they had talked about in that conference, it would be quite good. It, they call for the IMD waiver um, and a lot of other things like helping to fund AOT, assisted outpatient treatment in association with civil and mental health or civil and criminal mental health courts. You bet. Yeah, I do believe yeah. in those programs. I think they're very helpful. I don't think that most people need them. I think they're very specific for a very limited number of people like our son who has a very serious brain disorder who's been repeatedly hospitalized because he stops taking his medications. Leslie, will you please say more about assisted outpatient treatment, please? What it looks like is that you have a a mental health court, and it could be a criminal mental health court as a means of being a form of jail diversion, keeping someone out of jail by putting them into a program where they meet with a judge on a regular basis, and the treatment team to help the person to stay in treatment. Um, But it can also be a civil mental health court. My husband and I are working locally on trying to establish Iowa's first civil mental health court. Because here in Iowa, we have five criminal mental health courts, which is wonderful. And we visited one over in Scott County a couple of times now. And they are doing such wonderful work and getting really good outcomes. Um, And we're really pleased for that. But we really would like to provide that level of assistance and that much of a team around people before they get so sick that they actually end up committing a crime. We'd like to see that level of help 
sooner. In our case, imagine if that had been put around our son after his fifth hospitalization or his 10th or his 15th. You said criminal mental health court? Yes, there's, yes, there's I, both kinds. Yeah, I, I can picture what that would mean as far as you're in the criminal justice system and that court would be specifically for people who have a mental health diagnosis. But what is a civil mental health court? I don't understand. So it's basically the same thing, but it would be for somebody who hasn't already intersected with the criminal justice system, but has repeatedly been hospitalized. They keep going in and out, in and out. They're still in a revolving door. They've just somehow not had that intersection with breaking the law yet. Um, so it's a means of helping them to stay on their medications and stop having that continual deterioration. Because the really sad thing that happens for somebody like our son is because he's been in and out, in and out, in and out of psychosis, he's had more and more brain damage over the course of time. Because the longer you stay in psychosis, there's more brain damage and it becomes much more difficult to treat and bring that person back to a baseline. Um, mm -hmm. We've had psychiatrists advise us you have to try to keep him out of psychosis for three years so that there's potential for improved function over the course of time and getting him to be more independent with being able to stay treatment compliant. Approaching the two-year mark with him, knock on wood, we're hoping he'll stay out of psychosis. Really wish we'd had this team of people around him. Um, and he still doesn't have that. He's in a group home. He, he's undertreated, if you were to ask me. He doesn't have the support that he would really need. How does a person get into a civil court? So how that works is right now already, um, when somebody is leaving the hospital, um, most of the time the doctors are making a recommendation to a judge, hey, we think this person needs an outpatient treatment um, order. Right, They're, they already get a court order to stay compliant with outpatient treatment. Our son has that. What he doesn't have is a team of people and a civil mental health court to put that into a functional unit around him to help him to stay compliant with his medications and treatment. But that's how it would happen, is usually somebody would be in psychosis, went to the hospital for a period of stabilization, and then upon the time for discharge planning, they would make a decision, hey, this person's just had a glitch, they don't really need an outpatient order, or hey, this person's been in here five times in the past right. year, we really need to have this outpatient order, and this would be a good candidate for a civil mental health court. So it's like you're instituting a system of care around that individual. Yes, okay. that's what it is. So my thought was before I visited my first civil mental health court, I went to um, one with a team of people from Iowa. We went to them in Ohio and observed two different civil mental health courts. And the first day as we were walking up those stairs, you know, going up to a courthouse, my stomach was filled with unease because I didn't want to have to go see mental health court happen in a courthouse. I associated courthouses with somebody having broken the law and somebody's in trouble, right? It just kind of broke my heart that we that's what we were there to do. Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand it. When I went into the courtroom, I want to tell you what we witnessed, the most compassionate, the most caring, the most effective mental health care I had ever seen. And this was after dealing with our son's illness since 2008. It was 
amazing because the judge had this conversation with the client and with their family if they happened to be there and the people were um, there with them, the, the monitors that were kind of making sure of how the person was doing. And it was an interactive conversation. Hey, how are these meds working for you? Oh, you're having that problem, that side effect. Did you talk to the doc about it? What's the plan on this? Mm. Are you going to make some adjustments? It was a two-way collaborative conversation. And it was very different than anything we'd ever experienced. And I'll tell you, I know that there's a lot of people living with mental illnesses, especially the disabilities advocates out there that are very much against this. They call it forced treatment. Mm. What we witnessed in all the courts that we've visited now was nothing like forced treatment. And it was actually more collaborative than any other treatment we've ever seen. Mm. Um, So it just, it filled my heart with hope, honestly, that it could be better. And I do think we need more quality oversight in hospitals and plenty of quality oversight with assisted outpatient treatment programs. I think you have to build in those quality protections um, because I've seen some bad things too. And it's not like I want to lock up into a horrifying situation. But what we truly want as parents and family members is to help the per- our loved one get care where they can be safe, where we know they aren't going to hurt themselves, where we know they aren't going to hurt somebody else. And we really do want it to be a two-way conversation with those providers um, and with the docs and in a situation where they can get longer-term care and truly be stabilized before they're back out. Yeah, arguably, I've heard lately from people that, you know, it probably wasn't that bad in very many places, but let's say that it was abusive and excessive in some places. The key is to not totally do away with psychiatric care in long-term settings, but to provide oversight, right? Right. That's exactly right. And I'd like them to not be just warehouses like they are right now. I'd like them to be like psychiatric assisted living facilities. We have wonderful assisted living facilities for people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other types of things that happen to people in old age where you could have acute care locked units. You could have step down units. You could have independent living units. You could have a cafe. You could have a gym. You could have gardens. I would love to take money. If I were to win the lottery, what I would do today is call up the governor and say, hey, I'd like to donate all this money and go to one of our mental health institutions where we have these big, beautiful college campuses. That's what they look like. And I'd like to renovate and create a new model and put in first episode psychosis education programs. Just imagine if there were places that we could be proud to take a family member, we could be happy to go to as a person with a mental illness, we could be happy to work there, we could be happy to volunteer there. Imagine if they were state-of-the-art, quality, helping people become engaged and and progressing as their illnesses improve and as they stabilize, but also recognizing that these illnesses tend to be episodic. Oh, gosh, the meds stopped working. They need to come back in for a little bit. Okay, let's slide the scale that way, help them out a little bit, get them stabilized, and then help them back to independence again. I think that there's a whole new way that we could be approaching this that would be wonderful. That's a beautiful vision. That's a great vision. I've never heard it.
stated that way. Well, I think that it really could be that way if we just decided to put the money into it and get the right people kind of coordinating that and overseeing it to happen. We've asked the question, you know, what does healing mean to you? And you're certainly Mm -hmm. welcome to answer along the lines that you had prepared, but you put forth a very holistic model. And so what would you say about what does healing mean to you, not only for your son, but, you know, for the nation in terms of mental health care? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah, Um, answer it however you choose. Okay. So for our son, what I think healing would be is I'd love to get him to the point where he can at least gain the insight between staying on medications and staying stable and out of the hospital. I know that he may gain full insight. I've been reading uh, Xavier Amador's book, I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help, and that's been really informative. Mm. I wish I had known to read that like a decade ago, but I didn't. Um, We constantly are learning, and I love that. For him, that's the insight that I hope for him to gain and to get to the point where he can engage in some type of hobby, some type of maybe work or volunteer work where he can find meaning Um, and feel like he's contributing in some way that gives him some semblance of peace and happiness. That's great. Uh, Yeah, so that's our goal. Now, for the nation and the world of mental health care and and for the care of people with serious brain disorders, I would love to see it truly. I'd love to see that continuum of care be expanded all across the nation. The other goal is I'd really like to have disability communities, Bazelon, ACLU, engage in a conversation that could be helpful for people with all mental illnesses, from the serious brain disorders to people with depression and anxiety as well, to understand that we shouldn't have to be thinking about this as fighting a against each other. I don't think that we have to think about it. If we give resources to community, we can't have resources for hospitals and facilities. I actually think if we improve things all along the continuum, it helps everybody. What we're looking for is to just have policies and put treatment teams together that can help the next person. Because boy, I'd like to help the next person after his third or fourth hospitalization have a team of people around them so that they don't have to end up having 20 hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. I want to make it better. I've got one last <laughs> question. Goal. Okay. Can you tell me about the Christmas snickerdoodles that I read about? <laughs> I've heard about some Christmas snickerdoodles. Tell, tell me more, please. Yeah, they're not really Christmas, um, believe it or not. Snickerdoodles. So the story goes to that I've made snickerdoodles forever. They were my son's favorite cookie. And for um, him, when he would start to come out of psychosis, most of his psychosis revolved around him feeling like he was a deity. He was God. He was the son of God. Mm. You know how it is. Very uh, egomaniacal, very self-centered. Um, And so when he would start to ask me to bring snickerdoodles, it would be a sign to me that he was coming back to baseline because he didn't want those cookies for himself. He wanted them to give them to the other patients, to give to the staff. And when we'd run out of people to give cookies to, they'd let us go down to the cafeteria and give them to the staff people there, too. Um, Because he could understand that there was not much pleasure in a psych unit. And he wanted to give other people a chance to have something that they could enjoy 
even if just for a moment. So that's where Snickerdoodles came from. And I made, I don't even know how many batches over the course of time. I became known as the Snickerdoodle mom. Patrick, is your mom coming to visit? Um, Because, yeah. So then what we started doing is as we started going out and giving advocacy talks to different groups and to these presidential candidates, I started making snickerdoodles to take to them to have more of an impact. It's kind of like when you're a student and you're asked to give your first talk, you, what do you do? You bring goodies to get the people distracted go. with eating your goodies. Right. There you um, go. Honestly, it, it truly was an emotional impact thing when we started giving snickerdoodles to the candidates. Well, Tony, I well, think we have our answer to what does healing mean to you. It's, it's snickerdoodles. Right. Well, you know, and I was thinking, <laughs> Leslie was wondering a little bit ago, how do you bring everybody to the table? And hey, she answered her own question. Yeah. Boom. There you go. Who knew? <laughs> you know what I want? I want that recipe, if, okay. if that's yes. okay. And we can put it on the well, website. Yeah. Okay. Leslie's snickerdoodle it. recipe. I think that'd be amazing. You got that's it. Right. I can message it to you guys. Not a problem. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Tony Roberts, that was a really good interview with with Leslie Carpenter. She is uh, one of the most passionate advocates for persons impacted by serious mental illness that I've heard of that I know in my circles, both passionate and compassionate. She has a lot of life experience with caring for her son as well as relationships with other parents uh, and loved ones in NAMI and in other spheres. You you live... uh in a Facebook advocacy community that I don't quite touch on mm-hmm. as much. And Leslie is really a, a leading voice in that community and definitely don't want to gloss over the fact that she is talking to presidential hopefuls yes. in Iowa multiple times, like really trying to be heard and having an audience with them. Right. It really is amazing. And she made a good point that even though it may not result in Uh, the policies that are implemented this year uh, in the upcoming elections, you know, they're talking with staffers and, you know, people who are going to influence policy for the next decade or more. So they're bringing an awareness to the issue. She really wears two hats. And she made a point of saying very boldly that it's ruffled under the feathers when stigma is introduced as the most profound obstacle for mental health. She believes that it's better treatment that will result in a lower amount of stigma. She has qualms with the current direction of uh, NAMI in terms of being focused so much on stigma and not on improving the care for those with the least functioning. We've talked about that number of times on our show, stigma and trying to get cures for an illness are two very different things to be working on. It's really hard to do both. They're both very important. And I'm glad that she has solidly put herself in the let's invest in research and find cures and go about this in a very medical way. Yeah, I think that's one thing. And then also kind of how do you how do you address stigma? You know, is it through public relations campaigns or is it through legislation that will improve the care for those with 
the the least amount of functioning. I am a critic of NAMI, as you know, and I think too much emphasis is placed on the what DJ Jaffe would would call the worried well, <laughs> which are those those of us who may have a diagnosis, but we're functioning on the whole quite well compared to someone in prison on the streets. Certainly we need help like mental health parity in terms of health care. We need a lot less help than someone in prison or on the street. And you can't legislate ending stigma. No, you can't. You can't. When there are no longer issues that flow from the illness, then the stigma will be addressed. The, the other thing I wanted to touch on was she kind of described her ideal clinical community yes. uh, kind of in the context of a, a nursing home right. with staged levels of support, you know, from more or less independent living to, you know, nursing care that's around the clock, Yep. you know, and, and that could apply to mental health. It could. If we do these kinds of things and provide this kind of care for someone with Alzheimer's, which we are trying to do, we should provide these options for people with serious mental illness. Well, Tony, my goal this weekend is to make some snickerdoodles. Very good. I, I we have the recipe yep. um, along with this, uh, uh, you know, post on our uh, revealingvoices.com. So if, if our listeners would like to enjoy some delicious Leslie Carpenter snickerdoodles, you have it right at your fingertips. Yeah. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. Any role play games like Dungeons and Dragons? No, we don't do that. We have one called. <laughs> there's one called King of Tokyo that I love. I've I've played that with you. Yes. Yes. King of Tokyo is a fun game.